0: My name is Jim Fleming and this is Our Sunday School. Our Sunday School is part of Stewart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. To prepare for this lesson, please go to OurSundaySchool.com for a copy of today's handout. Now, let's get to this week's lesson. Well, good morning everybody. Welcome to Our Sunday School. Glad you guys are with us this morning. Welcome to everybody online so far. Uh, We're in Mark chapter 15 this morning. Uh, but we will be moving back to 6 and 10 for just a little bit this morning. Uh, but I don't think anywhere else in the scripture today, so I think we'll just be in the book of Mark. Um, so if you got your Bibles, we'll go ahead and read through Mark chapter 15, and I believe today we're going to start with verse 14 and finish up 14 and 15 and then move into a new section next week. So Mark chapter 15. So before I read that, Dave, that is an exceedingly soothing sound. No, 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 no. I really like it. I really like it. So I don't know why, but if I didn't chase that rabbit, I'd be chasing it in the middle of Pilate, and it's not going to go well for the reading. So all right. Mark chapter 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him mixed wine with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription on the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who also was himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Mark chapter 15. So as we move into this text today, this passage starting in Mark 15, verse 6, uh, it has—I don't know that it's a parallel passage, but it is a a similar passage with similar undertones. And I'm going to read something to you toward the end of the lesson that will that I, I want you to remember back to Mark chapter six. So as we go through Mark's gospel, we are exposed to lots of different individuals, right? So we're exposed to people who come to Jesus who want to be healed. We're exposed to people who come to Jesus who want to trick him, trap him. We're exposed to a couple of stories on the edge that don't really involve Jesus directly, but give us a pattern of behavior, and Mark chapter 6 is one of those. So let's flip over to Mark chapter 6 for just a moment. And I want you to to listen to Mark 6, 14 through 29. I'm going to read these 16 verses. And I want you to listen to these verses with the mindset of what we just heard in Mark 15. And what I want you to do is see if anything is similar. Look for the similarities in the leaders, in the accusers, and in the accused. Okay, we'll just see if there's any similarities here. So Mark 6, uh, verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So this is the back story, in case you don't remember. This is the setting for what's about to happen. So here's the focus part. Verse 21, but an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Any similarities whatsoever in what's going on here? So let's look at the leadership at first. Was Herod happy about his decision? No, no not. not at all. He's trying to get out of it. What about Pilate? Pilate seemed happy about his decision. He's like, yes, I get to get rid of this rabble. No, 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 not at all. He literally washes his hands in front of the crowd in another one of the Gospels to say, like, my his blood's not on me, his blood's on you. And the crowd's like, yes, it's on us, which is the, the dumbest cheer in the history of cheers. So what about what about what influences the leader? What's that? The crowd. the crowd influences the leader. Who's around him? Right? Is this strong leadership or is this weak leadership? Yeah. This is as weak as it gets. Right? I mean, this is, this is who you do not want in charge of anything. Somebody who is only and ever influenced by what's immediately around them. I mean, this, look, this, is, this is scary, scary stuff. What, from John's perspective in Mark chapter 6, what's going on? Does John have a lot of input into what's going on? None None whatsoever, right? We we actually only ever have, uh, I think there's only one of the Gospels that records a conversation uh, when John is in prison. And it's it's an interesting question because John asks one of his disciples, you know, is this this the Messiah? Like, is this who we're really after here? And so that disciple goes and asks Jesus, and Jesus says, go tell John at the... Deaf can hear, the lame can walk, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Which is a very clear picture pointing back to the Old Testament that prophecy has been fulfilled. I am the Messiah. I am worth dying for. And that's what John does. He dies because that's his part. So I want you to see that as... Because I've made this comment a couple of times, but I don't know that I've explicitly tied it out as, as clearly as this. I want you to see how clear it is the consistency of the shockingly weak leadership of everybody that's actually in leadership, right? I mean, there's there's just nobody that does a really good job of standing up and leading, okay? yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah it's like perhaps a lesson to learn is that sometimes it's okay to change your mind once you realize that you're wrong yeah. you know I'll promise you some of the best leaders I've ever worked for and been around would not I wouldn't say quickly change I mean you don't want somebody vacillating back and forth all the time but you presented new information and you go oh wow I think I'm wrong here yeah. this is not good I need to we need to change Okay, this is a really good thing, right? Cool. All right, and then one more text, Mark 10, verses 33 and 34. I have I have probably emphasized more than you may be, hopefully not more than you're comfortable with, but probably more than you're used to, uh, Jesus' prophetic role, not in... Not only in fulfilling prophecy, but being and functioning as a prophet himself and declaring this is going to come to pass and then something actually coming to pass. So Jesus is talking to his uh, disciples going up to Jerusalem. This is uh, just a few days in advance. We get to verse 33 and he says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. Which I, Some of the things that he clarifies for his disciples, I think, almost have to be really for us. Because they obviously would have known they're going to Jerusalem. You wouldn't need to say this is the record. like they could see it in the distance, right? This is not complicated. All right, so here we go. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. Did that happen? Okay, and they will condemn him to death. Did that happen? And deliver him over to the Gentiles. Did that happen? And they will mock him. Did that happen? And they will spit on him. Did that happen? And they will flog him. That happened? Yep. And they will kill him. That happened? Yep. And after three days, he will rise. Did that happen? Yep. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> there's, there's predicting the future, and then there's predicting it in order. And I don't want you to miss how um, just amazingly slick Jesus is with this. Because he, he knows all. Right? This is not some, oh, like well, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is going to happen, and then maybe... No, 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 no. These are all indicatives. They're all future indicatives. Like, these are things that are actually going to happen, every single one of them. All right, so now let's jump over to Mark 15. So let's look at verse 6. And I'm going to ask you a question. And you probably know the answer, but wait until I read the text to answer. I want us to, to get in the habit of doing this. So Mark 15, verse 6, and I'm going to read down through 15. So the question is, who is Pilate focused on? So now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Who's Pilate focused on? Pilate. Yeah. He's focused on Pilate. Look at at his words. Look at his words. Do you want me? See, he comes before Jesus in his speech to release you, the king of the Jews. And then down again in verse 12, then what shall... I do, again, he comes before Jesus in his speech with a man you call the king of the Jews. And then finally, what evil has he done? Like, those are the three things that we hear from Mark. Pilate's all about Pilate. Pilate's looking for a political solution because Pilate is a politician, right? And I will say that not all politicians are bad. I know of one that is good. Uh, Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. And technically, if you are a king, that is a political position. I know of one that is really, really good. He's flawlessly perfect, right? The rest? I don't know. I'll pray for them. So let's let's look. So this is kind of that's the introduction of what's what I want us to look at today. So Pilate's focused on Pilate. Got that. Alright, so let's start with verse 14. And Pilate said to them, Why? Which is a great question. Like, Pilate actually asks good questions in this process. He just doesn't do anything with the information. Uh, they didn't, did they? That's a good answer. That's a really good answer. And who certainly wasn't going to answer the question? The chief priests and the, like all the, the religious elite, right? Excellent answer, Dave. We're not guessing, we're looking at the text. Yes, that's awesome. Love it. I love it, I love it, I love it. But he does. I, th- I think he actually asks legitimately good questions here. These are not bad questions. Why? What's he done? But, but I want to drill down on this, because he says, what evil, and this word evil, um, it's only used one other time in Mark's gospel, in Mark 7, 21, and it's in the middle of one of those lists of... You know, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, this is Jesus speaking, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft and murder and adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, inverse slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And the crazy thing is that Pilate is actually linking, like Mark actually links Pilate's question back to something that Jesus had addressed earlier in Mark's gospel. So let me ask you, did Jesus ever have evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness? No. So the the irony of this word only being used two times, one is to describe evil that's coming out of someone. And the second, being asked of Jesus, who is as far from that as east is from west, so what evil has he done? And Pilate, the, way, the specific grammatical way in which he asked this question is brilliant because this, this word for done is an aorist, active, indicative. So i want to drill in on this for just a second. So aorist means there's no respecter of time. It's just the action itself is what we're focused on, right? So we don't care if it's past, present, future. It's just the action itself. I'm at the bottom of page 518 on your notes. So what evil has he done? The active means it is... Something that the subject of the statement, so this would be Jesus, would have actively done on his own. It wasn't something being done to him. So he didn't ask what evil has been done to him. That's a whole different answer, and it's a really long answer at this point in Jesus' life. He's asking at any time from Jesus, and then the indicative is a statement of fact. Can anybody prove at any time from Jesus he's ever done anything evil? Now, Dave, what was the answer? That's right. Oh, the answer to that is no. You That's right. But nobody answers that question. They just say crucify him, right? Yeah. And I'm convinced that this is part of that chief priest spinning up the crowd and spinning up the crowd and spinning up the crowd. Because we don't want to wait too long on that question. We don't need to hang out, right? Have you ever seen a courtroom scene where somebody asks a question and it's like this tense dramatic moment and you're in, if you've ever been to court. That's actually not how it works. It is shockingly dull. It is ridiculously boring. And there's almost never any of those moments. It's, it's just really, really awful. Um, but go ahead, Dave. Yeah, the, the, yeah the, the religious elite have given them their lines to say and they, the crowd is saying them. Yeah, the interesting thing though, if anybody had stopped to actually assess the, like, is there any evidence to answer Pilate's explicitly, wonderfully, theologically excellent question, The whole thing might have stopped right there. But the chief priests had their role to play. And they're spinning up the crowd. So we continue on. But they, the crowd, shouted all the more. Now, I will tell you this. There is a bit of debate in this, uh, in what I would call the elite, uh, advanced Bible study crowd uh, so these are people who write books on like thick books about the Greek grammar and whatnot on these types of books of the Bible as to who the they is referring to, whether it is the chief priest and the religious elite or the crowd. And most of them come down on the side of the crowd because of the order of the passage that's going. so. Far. And if, we haven't really talked to the chief, talked about the chief priests in a hot minute. It really seems to just be, you know, the people on, the, uh, on stage, if you will, that are conducting the visible exercise and then everybody in the crowd. So I would fall firmly in the camp of this is the crowd just based on uh, context of the, the sentence in the paragraph. All right, so the crowd shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. Now, the word cross has shown up before in Mark's gospel, but, uh, but when the crowd starts chanting, crucify him, this is the first time that it shows up, at the end of verse 13 and then again in 14. Then we come back to Pilate for just a hot minute. So Pilate, wishing. Now, we, we have seen, uh, I, I've said this a couple of times, it's one of my favorite words in, uh, in the Greek language, uh, the Greek word fellow, and it shows up. I didn't mark it in my notes. Oh no! If you saw my notes, you would be shocked that I didn't mark it in my notes, because everything else under the sun is marked in my notes. But where's the word "wish"? Do you want "wish"? There we go. At the uh, we're in verse nine, when Pilate says, "Do you want?" This is that that really complicated word. It can mean to choose or prefer, to wish, uh, to be glad about something, to be about to do something, or to delight in something. Right? It shows up a couple of dozen times in Mark's gospel. The word that is used here for what Pilate wishes is not Thelo. It is a much stronger word. This is the I am doubling down and committing to doing this. So you, um, I, I don't know a really good English word. Uh, resolved is probably as close as you can get, is actually one of the definitions here. Uh, so you can almost translate it, but Pilate resolved to satisfy the crowd. Like this was. He is going to be satisfying the crowd. Like, this is his intent when we go through this process. He released for them Barabbas. So, was this a righteous decision? No, not at all, right? Dave? That's right. The, uh, so I, so you, you parsed it a little differently than the way most people do. So you parsed it with who's, who's responsible for the decision to crucify Jesus. Well, the, yeah, Pilate is. Right. Pilate is the, like, he actually made the, like, okay, let's go and let's do this. But do you guys see how many people were pushing and leaning and plotting and scheming? I mean, this was... This was as orchestrated as orchestrated gets, right? It's unbelievable. Now, who all, I'll ask a slightly different question, who all is responsible for the death of Jesus? We all are, right? Now, I didn't, I didn't make the the uh, legal decision to crucify him like Pilate did, but I'm responsible. Like My sin did that. So when we read through Mark 15, it is very easy, specifically the way the gospel writers paint Pilate into the, he made this decision and the religious elite has kind of pushed him into this. It's actually fairly easy to take ourselves out of that. It's like, well, that was all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But all that happened because we are evil. All right, so let's not forget like, our role in this. There's a very real sense in which we are Barabbas. You know, we get released, and Jesus dies in our place. Okay. So here we go. A couple more verses, a couple more words here, and we finished with this uh, section. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So this word scourged, probably not a word you are. Uh, using often in your everyday language, Um, and certainly something I would imagine you have never seen happen. Um, It is pretty radically... uh, There are parts of the world today where canings occur, right? Where someone is beaten with a cane for some punishment. This is not that. I'm going to read you from... uh, This is William Lane's commentary um, on page 557 here. So a Roman scourging was a terrifying punishment. The delinquent, this is the guilty, was stripped, bound to a post or a pillar, sometimes simply thrown to the ground, and was beaten by a number of guards until his flesh hung in bleeding shreds. The instrument indicated by the Markan text, uh, Markan is the, what the intellectuals refer to as Mark's gospel. So the Markan text, the dreaded flagellum, was a scourge, This is a a whip consisting of leather thongs plated with several pieces of bone or lead so as to form a chain. Now, here's the deal. No maximum number of strokes was prescribed by Roman law, and men condemned to flagellation frequently collapsed and died from the flogging. Josephus, he was the Jewish historian that lived. He was born right after Jesus died. Josephus records that he himself had some of his opponents in Galilee scourged until their entrails were visible. While the procurator Albinus had the prophet Jesus bar scourged until his bones lay visible. So this would have been normal outcomes of a scourging. And although scourging was a customary, preliminary, uh, was customary uh, to be done preliminary to execution after a capital sentence, it was also inflicted as an independent punishment. So this is, this is not a, uh, a light beating somewhere. This would have been a, a horrible, horrible event uh, to undertake. It would have been just unbelievably bad. One more for you here. I got them out of order. All right. So having scourged Jesus. Now, from Mark's gospel, does the scene change? We're, we're still in the same physical location, right? So where physically are we? Uh, not in the court of the chief nope, not in the court of the chief priests. Pilate's place, right. So we're at Pilate's place. And there's, there's enough of a visible courtyard area so that there can be a crowd that can be whipped up. So we believe this scourging happens right there. So just imagine this for just a second. So you're stripped naked. Your hands are bound typically above your head to stretch the skin out so that the, the result of the tearing of your flesh would be as bad as, as it could be. They're looking to tear your back. They're also looking to tear the muscles in your legs. Um, because in preparation for a crucifixion, like you, you, you guys, how do you die on a cross? You know, Like what actually kills you? You suffocate, right? Because you, you have to pull yourself up to breathe and then you, you get pushed down. Gravity pulls you pushed down. You pull yourself up to breathe and you get pushed down. So while you're pulling up, you're pulling up on the nails in your hands and you're pushing off of the little bitty footstool at the bottom of the cross. Because the Romans perfected this. This is, this is what enabled the crucifixion to be over in days as opposed to minutes. So you, you push off. But if your legs have been lacerated and the muscles have been weakened, this is going to speed up that progress and make it, process and make it even, even more painful for you as you die. So... Horrible, horrible, horrible activity, event that is going on here. So having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. All right, I lied. We are going to go outside of Mark's gospel. We're going to go to Isaiah 53. forgot about this one. Isaiah 53. So... um. Isaiah 53 is probably one of the most quoted chapters uh, of Old Testament prophecy about Jesus explicitly, mostly because it is shockingly simple. Like We we don't have to have a high degree of religious or, or biblical acumen to see the parallels in what's going on here. So Isaiah chapter 53, so let me ask you this question. Did all Jews in Jesus' day know how to speak and read Hebrew? No. Many would have. Like, many, many, many would have. But in order to do business, you would have had to know how to at least speak Greek and probably read it in order to do transactional work here and there. Well, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, right? We, like, we know that. But so many of the Jewish people had forgotten Hebrew and didn't know how to read or write or speak Hebrew. They only knew Greek. That a group of Jewish scholars translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. Which, as it turns out, is a shockingly helpful Bible study tool for us because then we, and it, was, it happened about this, relatively close to the same time the New Testament was, was written. So we get something that's fairly close for this concept in Old Testament. Now I have a Greek word that I can peg it to something in the New Testament. So now I've got something I can compare and contrast. So go to Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, this is speaking of Jesus, specifically the day that he is crucified. But this word for poured out in the Greek Old Testament, which it makes my head hurt to say that because you guys know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. What we just talked about is the Greek version, the LXX, the Septuagint, The the Greek edition of the Old Testament, that word for poured out, is the exact same word Mark uses for delivered. And Mark is drawing a connection between the Old Testament prophecy and what's happening to Jesus right here. Now... One of the questions that I have tried to avoid answering, because I I don't know that it's necessarily a a really overly helpful question, is who was Mark written for? Everybody that has written a book on this will say that Mark is written for the Romans. Because most of the stuff that uh, is in Mark seems to be overly explanatory if you're a Jew. There's some parentheticals here and there, like, well, any Jew would know this. But this word pretty much universal agreement that Mark would have chosen this particular word, the Holy Spirit would have chosen this particular word, so that the Jews who were familiar with the Greek Old Testament would have made this connection. Because a Jew really has a couple of jobs. One of them is to keep the law, the other one is to be on the lookout for the Messiah. So you better know those, those messianic prophecies and be looking out for them. Oh, Josh Blair asked a great question online here. So who did the scourging? Was it Pilate himself? Mark and Matthew almost make it sound as though as it is Pilate. Um, It it would not have been Pilate. Uh, A couple of reasons. One, you would have wanted somebody with a great deal of endurance to do this. Um, I, I grew up on a farm, and we used whips for different things here and there. Whips wear you out. Like if you're not used to doing a whip, and this would have been a really heavy Multi, uh, like the, one of the modern phrases for this is a cat of nine tails, right? So you got all these pieces of leather with metal on the end. This would have been a vigorous, vigorous activity. Uh, Would have taken several minutes to do. Um, And most people who are in some type of a political or religious uh, rank, when it says they... uh, they ordered something or they did something. It doesn't necessarily mean that they personally did that activity, right? That they might've uh, farmed this out. Now, Most politicians don't like their hands dirty. that's exactly it. Right. Most politicians don't like to get their hands dirty. I would say that, and Pilate actually washes his, right? So, you know, which I guess you could take as a, I would argue as weak evidence, Josh, that Pilate actually did the scourging because like, whoever did the scourging would have been drenched in the prisoner's blood. All right, this is not a nice, neat little clean process. Yes, ma'am. I was considering in the next section it says that the soldiers took Jesus yes. him, and called forth their whole garrison. Yes. I yes. Think that those were the people That's right. Also. That's exactly right. These soldiers never left Jesus. Right? They, he was a closely guarded political prisoner. They're not gonna let him escape. They're not gonna let him, let him get broken out. This is not what's gonna happen. Excellent. Nice use of the text. All right, so, so he delivered him. So there's a, I, I just wanted you to see all of the richness in that word delivered because it is a really beautiful word. He delivered him to be crucified. So I'm going to come back now. I'm going to come back. I'm going to read you something I, that I wanted to get to at the beginning, but I needed to do all of the stuff at the beginning to, to, to read this and make sense. So in the trials, this is, uh, sorry, this is Edwards, uh, the Gospel according to Mark. I'm on page 464 here. In the trial scene, as elsewhere in Mark's gospel, ironies confront us. Pilate, who begins by seeking amnesty for Jesus, ends by seeking it for himself. The Jewish subjects, on the other hand, whose duty it is to obey, assert their will and win the day. The governor is thus strangely governed The free sovereign loses his freedom he forces to presume to control, whereas Jesus, the silent prisoner who, for all intents and purposes, has no control, remains true to his divinely ordained purpose and thus alone remains truly free. The description of Jesus' trial before Pilate recalls the description of John's beheading by Herod Antipas in chapter 6. Antipas and Pilate are both impotent potentates. Herodias and the chief priests are both agents provocateurs. And John and Jesus are both silent and defenseless. Which I think is an interesting way to end this particular section. So let's jump to our applications and personalizations. I love the engagement this morning. Thank you all for that. So a couple of real simple applications. Uh, Application number one prophecies about the messiah were fulfilled in jesus christ right let's just i'm i am one of my goals in this series is to hammer that home so much that you are tired of hearing it like that's how much i want to repeat it so prophecies about the messiah were fulfilled in jesus christ so what do we do with that believe our lord jesus christ was the messiah because he was believe our lord jesus christ was the messiah Application number two, Jesus' prophecies were fulfilled, right? So he had this prophetic role that he had to fill. So Jesus' prophecies were fulfilled. So what do we do with that? Believe our Lord Jesus Christ was a prophet. Because he was. And then application number three... Jesus is our model of biblical leadership. Even in this text, right? Because biblical leadership is based on love and sacrifice. And it's not about being boastful and making it about the leader. So what do we do with that? Look to Jesus and imitate him. Him. Look to Jesus and imitate him. And I'll leave you with this one last thought. Um, Every person gets to stand in the seat of Pilate. We get to pick. Are we going to choose Jesus? Are we going to choose anything else? And if we want to give it a name and say Barabbas, that's fine. But we all have a little bit of Pilate in us in that we have a choice And I would challenge us to choose wisely and not to substitute anything for Jesus. Because he alone is the only one who is the Messiah, who is the prophet, who is the son of God, the king of kings, the Lord. I mean, just go on and on and on. There is none like him. And nothing else will do. Because Barabbas is a footnote in history. Pilate is a footnote in history. And they're only important because of Jesus. So let's not forget who our king is. So with that, that's the lesson for today. Uh, We're running a bit behind. We're going to skip the question today. We'll catch up next week on that. But uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll start with Mark 15, 16. And uh, we'll go from there. So you should have a weekly update on your table. So if you would, make sure your name's at the bottom of that. Uh, Put any prayer requests down that you have. Make any edits to those if you would. For those of you online, if you have any prayer requests, please, please, please engage and write those in. The comments, we would love to pray for those as well. And other than that, I believe I'm done. Thank you for coming to Sunday School today. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for engaging. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, and weekly email. You can subscribe to all three of those at OurSundaySchool.com.